Welcome to the Grace Monroe Podcast. We are a community of Jesus followers located in Monroe, Georgia, that exists to pursue God's heart for the restoration of all things. For more information about our church, visit graceformonroe.com. But in the meantime, we hope you enjoy this week's message. I'd like to say all the sappiness aside, but uh, by way of introduction, I want to warn the guys in the room, uh, this is going to be a super emotional sermon. Uh, Maybe not with tears gushing and everything, but we're going to talk about relationships today. And uh, so we didn't want, if you got the E! News, you you probably read a little bit of that. Um, This is going to feel a, a little bit like marriage counseling. Let that hang for just a second. Center yourself. Uh, but marriage counseling between you and God. So we're going to dig into your, into your uh, living room or bedroom today. We'll do that in another sermon, uh, but we're going we're gonna to get up close and personal uh, with God. So we've been in the book of Revelation. If you're a guest with us, you probably didn't know what you were getting into either. Uh, we've been uh, in the book of Revelation for the past few weeks. We're kind of midway through on the other side of halfway through this sermon series. And uh, if you're familiar with the church world, if you've sat through, been subjected to a sermon series through the book of Revelation, it's verse by verse and uh, all of that, you, you probably know that, that uh, we grunt, we preachers in the church world, and the preacher stands up and says, we're going to be preaching through the book of Revelation. People are like, oh, no, not again. And you kind of look at dead men walking, you're looking around the room thinking, at the end of this series, a third of you aren't going to be here anymore, <laughs> because his opinion is not going to line up with a good number of people in this room, and uh, it, with good authority. The truth truth is, even Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but the great theologian Martin Luther, when he was asked about preaching through the book of Revelation, he said, no, nah, I'm good. <laughs> you go read it for yourself. This is not for public consumption. He didn't say it just like that, I could, but he did say, ah, no, <laughs> just, there's just too much. I don't want to talk about whether the helicopters are frogs and all that kind of stuff, but not quite as controversial. And I'm not making fun of any part of God's Word. It's all the inspired. It's, it's, it is holy writ. It's God's Word. Uh, but some things are more meaty than others, and, and uh, handle with care should be strapped across the front of the book of Revelation. Uh, not quite as controversial, but still every bit as groaning when preachers tell other preachers that they're going to be uh, preaching through the letters to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, as we are, <laughs> preachers will say, hey, so where are you going next? Not book, but part of the nation. It, it, there, there's some stuff in here that's so direct that uh, often preachers preach it on their way out their door. They, they have, <laughs> that's not why Brian's not here today. <laughs> just occurred to me. They'll have uh, a down payment on a house and, a, and a, a, you know, the moving van's already loaded up because in this section, in all truth, if you haven't read these, if you've just kind of listened to the sermons, but you haven't had eyes on these, the one that comes after our text today, Jesus talks about vomiting a people, people out of his mouth. You make me sick. Blah! That kind of, it's that kind of section. He says, some of you think you're a church, 
but I'm about to take, not, the candlestick doesn't really translate to us. I'm going to take your candlestick away. That would be as if the preacher says, all right, you're not doing good. If you don't cut it out, I'm taking the sign off of the front of the building. We're taking the cross down. And you show up one Sunday and all of a sudden it's like, oh, we lost our tax exempt status. They took our name. We're not in the phone book anymore. He's, they took everything. Like there are some hard things and very direct things in this section of Scripture. The cool thing about that, in contrast to a couple of the letters, this one and one other, we're going to be in uh, Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7, the church to the Philadelphians. Every time, I, in my mind, if I say to the, uh, to, to the uh, Philippians, translate that Philadelphians, the contrast between this letter and the letters to the ones he wants to vomit out and take stuff from is so helpful because God invites us in this section, and it's true to his nature to invite us for uh, an up-close and personal conversation with him in order for us to see, observe, and to know him more fully. Did you catch that? Through this entire, the chapter two and chapter three, the invitation is, both in God's anger and in, in our text for today, in his tenderness, is for us to know him fully, to know him more fully, for him to reveal all parts of his nature to us so that we can be well informed as his children of what he's going to do with us, what he's going to do for us, what our interaction with God is going to be like. Because often God gets a reputation for the candlestick taken, spitting out of the mouth, raining fire and lightning bolts from the sky will box God into a single planed personality. Not you, of course. We're, we're very, kind of shored up in this room on our theology. So this is just going to be, uh, this is just going to be a primer. We're just, we're just, this is going to be a review for you. I know that you never feel inappropriately afraid of God when you're having a tough time in your life. You're clear about how he feels about you. You hear the sarcasm. That often, though, we'll box God in to being pretty simplistic in his emotions, in that he's either happy or mad. And we'll read the Bible through the primary lens of the commands of God, what God wants from me. And that lens being, how do I keep God off my back? How do I keep him from being mad at me? Is God mad at me? I don't know if God's mad at me. I feel like God's mad at me. So do more. Do right. Get yourself together. Why? So God will either be happy or he just won't be mad. And I'm seeing some heads shaking. We don't, we don't use it. We sing enough songs for us to learn to lie about that fear in our hearts. We just, Christians are, we lie a lot. 
I mean, how many people walked into this room today that are not doing well, said, fine, I'm doing good, doing great, so ready, let's do more, so glad to be here, glad to see you. We do the same thing with God in our hearts, our spirit, holding ourselves back out of fear that God is simplistic in his emotions or negative in his emotions, looking for a reason to not like me or to get me. Ah. So I say this is going to be kind of like marriage counseling. What we're going to do is we'll put God on the couch with us. He's sitting here, we'll hold hands with God, and I'm going to kind of be the therapist. We said, let God speak for himself. How do you feel about God? I think God is mad at me again. And God's like, can I, can I speak? That's the Bible. I'd like for that to be your experience with the Bible. Can I speak? I know you feel like I, I know that it seems to you like I don't like you. I know it seems to you that I'm after you. I know it seems to you that I'm constantly disappointed. Can I speak? I don't want to speak. I'd like to interpret myself for you. And over 1,500 years, story after story, chapter after chapter, verse by verse, people speaking for God, writing for God, acting things out for God, display after display, it's us on the couch with God saying, I want you to know me truly. I know the husbands in the room are like, not again, man. She wants me to know her. <laughs> the exhausting work. But the truth is, even if you don't like people, I'm searching the crowd for that look. <laughs> it's something. Even if you don't like people, you spend a bunch of your time trying to understand the people around you that you don't even like. To understand how to interact with them, what they're really thinking, what their intentions for you really are. We're well-versed in relational therapy both in our marriages and our homes with our kids and our workforces, and probably in today's world, we're never more skilled. There never have been more tools in understanding both ourselves and other people than in today's world. There's so many personality tests. All of them revolve around knowing ourself and knowing the person in front of me or the team that I'm on. And probably your favorite personality test says a lot about your personality. Like you have the DISC test, the Myers-Briggs. If you're not familiar with these, you can look them up, write them down. The Enneagram, like box you into, into one or two numbers. If you're not familiar with the Enneagram, I'm a huge, huge fan because it lets me interpret myself however I want to. I can, that should be on the front of the Enneagram. Be whoever you want to be. <laughs> And the one that our team's doing right now, or just, just finished doing, it's called Working Genius. And I thought, I've been waiting for somebody to, tell, to recognize that I'm, I'm a working genius. It actually, the working genius, if you're a leader of a team, look it up. It is so, it's a great companion to the other personalities, because what it does, it helps you understand where you thrive, your genius, and where it doesn't say where you're stupid, but I'm, I think when I felt the book looking at me, I thought, there's a part of me that's stupid in this area. I'm just no, not great. <laughs> I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be a happy camper, but it helps, it's helping our team to lean into one another's strengths and to understand one another, understand ourselves and each other more fully in order to avoid when someone seems one way. It's like, you seem mad. 
Well, it's because you're making me do stuff that I'm stupid at. Right? Understanding ourselves and the people around us, apply though some of those tools, standards, at least the mindset and the work as you're sitting here on the couch with God in understanding him more fully. Even as I say that, some of you are thinking, well, I'm him. I say, yeah, God is a him, but God is a person. And if he's a person, this, some of the same, the work and the, the reality of being in a relationship, not just with words on a page and commands in a book, not with an object or with a kingdom or some far off king. God calls us to be in close up person to person relationship with him. And when we talk about the Trinity, the three parts of the Godhead, each of these three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are persons. We call it the, pers the third person of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit, by the way, is not an it. It's not an object. The Holy Spirit is, Spirit is another person in the Godhead, three of whom form the entity that we know of God. Let's talk for the next 45 minutes about what the Trinity is. Does anyone have an apple? I'll show you. No, no. We're not going to go deep like that. They are persons, though. That's why the Gospels were written. Because if you haven't gotten it by then, all of a sudden you see Jesus walking in. He laughs. He cries. He hurts. He feels joy. He has friends. That's God. A complex emotional entity. With that in mind, I'd like for you to, if you don't have a Bible with you, we'd like to, uh, Thomas, would you, would you do this? If you'd slip up your hand, if you see any hands go up, if you don't have a physical Bible with you, we have one over here, we have two. If you haven't met Patrick, meet, meet Patrick. He's cool. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3. It's going to be super hard to find. Let me give you some directions. There's a lot of books in your Bible. Turn all the way to the end and start flipping. It's the last book. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, he says, write this. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. Don't you just love when somebody says, you're so weak? <laughs> That's what he says, though, to the Philadelphians. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, he says in verse 9, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. I don't know what church down the road he's talking about. Synagogue of Satan. He's super straightforward. Who says that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before you, before your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Oh, I love that scene. 
If this doesn't remind you of Psalm 23, where after he's walked with you through the valley of the shadow of death, and you'll fear no evil, and then he'll set you down at a table prepared before you in the presence of your enemies and pour oil of gladness over your head. God wants to show you off. He's got some anger in there as well. He wants them to know they will learn they're going to be schooled in God's love for you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. When you read the word endurance, what comes to your mind? What picture comes to your mind? I see exhaustion. Like endurance is a cool word, but it's like almost at the end of a marathon and the legs are all veiny and, and they're tired. Like even dirt. Endurance says you are tired. This is weak. We have tired. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Everybody else is going to get that. I'm going to protect you. Why? Because you're weak and you're tired. I am coming soon. Look out the window. See me. I'm coming. Hold fast what you have so that no one will seize your crown. People are closing doors in their faces. We'll go into that in just a minute. They sense that someone's trying to take their prize away, their crown away. The one who conquers, Jesus, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on you, I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the, of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my new name, he who has an ear. Let him hear. This is God sitting on the couch. So let me tell you the truth to a people. Let's talk for just a minute about Philadelphia. And if, if you're like me, when I, even as I say that, I hear the Christians speaking with a weird accent, like they're from Philly. <laughs> I can't do the accent, so I'm not going to try. But probably just the same there. This was, this was an odd kind of place. As far as geography goes, it was lined, it was bumped up against uh, volcanoes that had in their past eruptions provided just a really lush farmland. So if you were uh, shopping at the farmer's market there, their peaches would be huge. Uh, they, they, was, they had lucrative uh, crops. They, there was some, a, a tremendous amount of wealth there. It was an influential city. Uh, because of those kinds of things, but also the flip side of the volcanoes was that there were almost daily earthquakes, tremors uh, that shook their land that caused them to have both homes in the city, uh, but uh, huts outside of the city where they spent a lot of their time. Imagine the emotional instability. Where are we sleeping tonight, Mom? Got no idea. Just, we're going to see how things go. Uh, and the term that locks doors, unlocks doors, refers likely to part of that. It's lock your door on your way out of town. Are we coming home? I don't know. I don't know if today is the day. 
Philadelphia, though, historically had been a place of extreme cultural influence. It was the mouth or the gateway uh, into the rest of the kingdom, and the Greeks used that port city as a place of learning and influence to take the Greek, Grecian ways, their ideas, and their culture, and spread them, and had done it, uh, history says, extremely effectively, that out of the mouth of Philadelphia would come uh, within a very short period of time, extreme and thorough cultural change to the rest of the kingdom. It's a place of great influence. Imagine the strategy of God planting a church there. The stakes are extremely high for the Christian Philadelphians. Yet, they weren't the only ones. They were sandwiched as a small, he says, weak people between idolaters on one side, worshipers of idols, and uh, Jewish people on the other, worshipers of Old Testament Judaism. This small band of believers, when they walked out in the morning, <laughs> looked at their neighbors to the right and looked at their neighbors to the left and saw no kindness in their eyes. Experienced different things from the idolaters treating them like trash and persecuted them. The Jews treated them like they were illegitimate. Notice his phrasing, the temple of Satan. God's reversing this on them in truth and reality. But when their kid needed to sell uh, uh, tickets to the car wash for volleyball, go knock on the door on the right, and what happened? The door was slammed and locked. This is, the, this is what he's speaking to. Go over to the other side, door was slammed and locked. If they wanted to start a business, engage in commerce, buy some special gift for the wife, the doors in the community, the doors in the marketplace, the doors in their life were constantly slammed and the message hammered into them, you are nothing, you are apostate, you are wrong. Not only the message, which would have degraded their sense of self-worth, but they were under the threat of constant threat of persecution from both sides, so they experienced violence as well. Not only the threat of persecution, but they woke up in the morning and didn't know where they were gonna sleep. This had left them thin emotionally. They were weak. They were broken. They were done. And yet, the stakes were no less high. This is, the Philadelphians played a critical role. They were strategically placed. The kingdom of God, the mission of God, relied at least in part but critically on them. How is God going to motivate them? Listen, how's God going to motivate them to continue when they're done? And the answer to that question will inform us how God's going to interact with me when I'm done. I got no more to give. I'm weak. I'm broken. I'm tired. And too much. Is God going to be like my coach? 
I played most of my um, young life through, I, I signed up for football on accident. Um, we had a play day at the end of first grade. This is going to sound so unreal. The end of first grade. Um, and uh, throughout the day, they're like, hey, why don't you go sign up for football? Why don't you go sign up for football? In my mind, I'm like, ah, oh, cool. We're going to play football today. <laughs> So I went and put my name on the list and heard nothing of it. I went home disappointed. I said, Mom, we never played football. So midsummer, a truck pulled up in front of our house with a bunch of uh, rising second graders in the back. Mom didn't know the dude. He waves with his lit cigarette, you know, from the probably an open, <laughs> open container. Mom says, go get in the back of that stranger's truck. So I did, and carried us off to his backyard. 30 minutes later, we're all standing there in our underwear, trying on, sounds creepy, but I was in, man, trying on our pads and everything. And uh, literally from then on, I played football and had one experience after a coach. And different coaches with different personalities, but they all shared one thing. That at, at the critical point in the game, I've got 10 minutes, five, three minutes left, and I say, God, I'm bleeding out everything. <laughs> I got nothing left to give, but we got to keep giving. What does the coach say? Suck it up, groom. <laughs> you can rest when you're dead. I can hear this. And it was extremely motivational. <laughs> you come to your coach, the last thing you ever want to tell a coach is I'm tired. You're in practice, right? <laughs> and you've run and you've, you've beat it down. You've been doing in the, in the extreme heat. And you say, coach, I'm tired. What does he say? Take a lap. <laughs> Do it. All right, we'll see how tired you are. Do up downs until I tell you we're done. That's a coach. That's a, it's motivational in that setting. But the question is, how is God going to deal with you? How is God going to deal with me when I'm done? When my bandwidth is used up, when my emotions are ragged, when I've lost as much as I can lose, when I've given as much as I can give, and I've hurt as much as I can hurt, how's God going to deal with me? Suck it up, groom. I think we feel that way. The machine's got to keep going. This is, in my opinion, amongst other things, line by line, we can come different ways at this text. But for me, this is such an emotion, such a, a, a beautiful study in the appropriate emotions of our God. The appropriate emotions of our God. But first of all, before we can talk about that, you got you to realize God is an emotionally complex being similar to us. When we talk about that we're made in the image of God... You and I, go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, he made us in the image of God. This, this, that means different things. He doesn't really give us an ABC on it, but we suppose that that means that just as God ruled the earth, he created men and women to rule the earth. So to rule over the animals, unlike some of you whose animals rule over you. Let's be honest, that's unbiblical. <laughs> Your dog is supposed to be, you're supposed to own your dog. Your dog's not supposed to own you, right? But to rule over the earth, that we're, to, we're creative. This isn't a command, it's a reality. God created and the brush strokes of his creative mind are all over the earth. And 
that just like that, I'm creative as well, that God is relational. He invites in how beautiful this is. He doesn't just rule from a high castle and tell his people what to do, but he calls them into relationship with him to love them. He's intimate. We too long for relationships, some of us more than others, but we have a longing to love and be loved. But then lastly, if you read, it has to be in there and maybe a priority. God is an emotionally complex individual. He doesn't just feel one or two things. He feels lots of things like you and me or like me and a few of you. There's some of you that are not emotionally complex. You got the two things. Don't look at your husband. Do not look at your husband right now. He's emotionally complex. When he comes into the room, the question is, how are you going to deal with me? I think before we break down some of the phrases, let's say this, that God is emotionally complex, but always appropriate while in his emotions, while I am emotionally complex and not always appropriate. I observe this or we observe this in the fact that in the larger context of these letters, God's been angry with some people, vomit, take stuff, discipline. But the Philippian, Philadelphians do not catch one on the chin from God's other emotions. An example of my inappropriate emotions, I'm sure none of you will relate to this, but hey, look, I'm in a store trying to take some jeans back. The person won't let me bring them back. It's been 31 days instead of 30 days. I'm in an altercation. There's maybe a little frustration shown. They're not giving me what I want. I'm feeling what I feel. And it's one thing, it's anger. I get in the car, not having gotten what I wanted. And my wife is there. She says, how are you? And I'm super jolly. Good. No, I turn to her. I'm fine. Are you mad? I don't say it like that. Are you mad at me? No, you're catching the collateral. You're catching the runoff. You're catching one on the chin out of my other emotions, the frustration at work, you know, another relationship, realistic, unrealistic, right or wrong. Often the people around us, the people that we're closest to, catch one on the chin from other relational conflicts and challenges. And while that is human, and those emotions are understandable, and we've got to work through that. You never have to work through that with God. You will never catch one on the chin because God's ticked at someone else. While he is emotionally complex, he is always emotionally appropriate with you and with me. We see that not only in the way he's dealt with other churches, but in this text itself, he's tender with those who are weak. We'll dive more into that in a few minutes. While he's livid with the people that are persecuting him, he, he's appropriate in his emotions and in his interactions. He's mature, unlike some of you. And as my wife has let me know on various occasions, unlike me, in my processing of emotions. God is always, he is a safe, mature place for you and for me. Notice he's tender with them, but he is after the persecutors. This reminds me of a story 
of, of a time in my life when I was four or five years old, we did not have a lot of money as a family, which was obvious because we would spend Friday nights at Kmart, not going shopping at Kmart, just going to Kmart to hang out. Because Kmart had a deli and uh, they had a toy section that we could, as kids, we could play with all the toys that we were never going to get. And so we'd spend hours at Kmart. Mom and dad would sit in the deli, wait for the blue light special to sound over, and then run over and get 15 of something that we didn't need for a half a dollar. So on one of these evenings, we're off in the store, my sister and I, playing Crash Up Derby with some of those big metal carts, just terrorizing the store. I was that kid, no boundaries, no control. As we're just hitting everything and zipping in and out of the aisles, I screech around a corner and almost hit the biggest, burliest biker fella possible. The absolute wrong person. And he, I'm sure he'd been observing this and coming unglued. He had murder in his eyes as he took the cart, shifted it out of the way and grabbed me by my shirt before he could lift my feet off of the ground, I got the words out, Dad, help! <laughs> out of nowhere. My dad is standing, and he says the words that I hear. We've talked about this. I hear them in my head right now. Get your hands off of my son. That's my son. Dad takes me puts me behind him, between me and danger. Mom, recognizing that this is about to get ugly, takes me, covers my eyes, and gets us in the car. When dad showed up, and it, she did not cover my ears, so there's words of flying. Dad gets in the car, his hair was messed up, his face was red, he'd obviously been in a kerfuffle. I'm thinking, he is about to destroy me. Because I caused this. It was me. But he turned around and recognized I was scared to death. I was shaking. Not, not of him. I just, this, guy, this guy was big. This was a scary situation. Dad looks back at me. See the look in his eyes. No one will ever hurt my boy. It's a lie. There were a lot of people that hurt me. <laughs> okay. So parents, <laughs> parents do not always tell you. Dad couldn't always be there, man. No one will hurt my boy except for him. <laughs> That's the privilege of parenting. I'm thinking I'm in trouble. I should have been. But dad was appropriate in his emotions. And he kicked some butt. And I knew I'm safe with this man. It's my dad. Friends, impose yourself. Read this. Layer it over your experience with God and know that you're safe with God. He will always be appropriate in his emotions. You'll never catch one on the chin from him. But can we drill down just a little bit more that God in his complexity is able to feel more than one thing at a time with you? Like he can feel more than one thing about uh, the Ephesians, in one sense, and being angry and ticked off at them, I'm going to take stuff from you, uh, and then layer that off, boundary that off, and feel love and tenderness towards you. But 
even though this isn't in the text, I feel like this is, we need to deal with this, that God can be both. He can be more than one things with you, one thing with you. He can be ticked and tender. God can be angry with you and that not diminish his love for you. God can be disappointed in you and not done with you. He's, he's a whole complex emotional thing with maturity, but conviction. And at the forefront, God loves you. He's in love with you. And the definition that he gives of his relationship with you is of a father. I love that as much as I love in a marriage relationship because historically we understand, or in reality we understand that some marriages end. You, as a child of someone, will never cease to be that person's child. When God says, you are a son and a daughter to me, you've been birthed by him, John chapter 3, of the things that that means is that you will never, nothing you can do will make you less a child of God. You're his kid. You can't unbe his kid. And he sees you through that lens. I tell you what, that biker saw me through the lens of something else, and my daddy saw me. Because I was my dad, am my dad's son. Yet, and that doesn't mean that it's all fluff, fluffy, you know, Santa Claus. But if I could see at the forefront of my, the, the context of my relationship with God, what, what my wife said to our children growing up, I could never, she'd have them rocking them. She's for years and years, she'd say, I could never love you any more than I love you right now. And I could never love you any less. There is the, I can never love you anymore. You don't have to sucker for it. You don't have to wait for it. You don't have to wish I love you, a full cap, overflowing. But what I really need to hear when I fall on my face, when I make mistakes, when a cop for me brings me home, there's nothing I can do that'll make me any less a child of God. You. And he could never love you less. That should, that should make it okay when God needs to give you a whooping. Right? In my house, we didn't get whippings. <laughs> and I'm not suggesting this isn't a parenting seminar, but we got whoopings in my house. And I got more than anybody else. I think my sister had, you know, two or three to her. And I had dozens and dozens. It was almost like daily. Dad had to come home and say, oh, good night in heaven. <laughs> got to have a whooping. <laughs> the thing that made it different with my dad, and I was bragging on him. He was here a few weeks ago. Some of you met him. My sisters and I, we all shared the same uh, story and interpretation. Dad never, and we'll say this, is did dad ever whip you, whoop you, uh, dry eyed? So now nah, dad always cried. And he didn't have to say, this hurts me more than it hurts you because I'm pretty sure physically it hurt me worse because he was good. He was very skilled. <laughs> but he wept every single time. And that was worse, man. <laughs> it's like, uh, why don't you just whip me? Why do you have to cry? Because then I'm like, I feel so sorry for what I did. And that is the picture of God. 
his tenderness. He's caught up in his relationship with you. He cares about you so deeply. When he has to discipline you, if he has to experience the other side of that emotion, it's never just the one thing. It's the whole thing. And you're never less than a child of God, loved by God, precious to God, and yet. Shouldn't that make room for God to do hard things with you? Can I hear amen? amen. Lastly, and this kind of starts bringing us down, God not only has appropriate emotions, but he recognizes the reality of our emotions. He deals appropriately with me, with you, where I am and what I'm experiencing. This is where we dig into the phrase, I know you. He says in verse 8, I know your deeds, and I know that you are weak. That phrase. The rest has just been kind of a global observation, but this, I know you. I know that you're weak. Let you and me understand that God is dealing with us as we are, and as individuals, not as cogs in a machine of the kingdom of God. So many of us have come into this room in some form or fashion, in some context of our lives as cogs. Like your boss would tell you, say, I'm really not, I'm just not doing so good right now. Whoo! And your boss, some of our bosses would say, hey, I got 15 other people that can do your job better than you. So you suck it up. And the coaches suck it up. We bring that, transfer those experiences over to God, understanding or thinking, believing, knowing that the stakes are extremely high. There are people that are not saved that need to get saved. The kingdom of God must advance. The borders have to move forward. God's name must be glorified. If there's ever been stakes higher in the history of the world, there haven't. There's a mission that has to succeed. What the Philadelphians learned was that while that's true, they were the mission. And God's not willing to sacrifice you for the sake of anyone else. He doesn't love them any more than he loves you. The people that aren't in this room, that need to be in this room, worshiping their God, but they don't know him, are not more important to God than you are who's in this room. You are not a cog in the machine. You are his child. And he recognizes where you are, what you're feeling. He knows your ends. He sees the phrase on the edges of your heart. I know you. I know what you've been through. I see what's going on. I'm not absent. And he adjusts himself to our present need. We've dealt with that. This is, this is repetitive, but I want to take this one, take a little bit of a detour for you. If God recognizes your desperation, your weakness, your endness, if God recognizes that and is kind to you in that moment, Friends and family, be kind to yourselves. Can you admit, I'm just, I don't have the capacity right now for this. 
This isn't an, uh, letting you off the hook and giving you an invitation to sin. This is to keep you from sin. To recognize in this season, whether it's experiencing death, loss, illness, failure, strains in relationship to say, I can't put one more thing on my plate because God recognizes that with you. He says, man, haven't you been through enough? How about we scale it back? I get that you're weak. I'm going to fight this battle for you. How about you take the bench? I'm going to go out there and I'm going to kick some. But yet, we don't, we're not kind to ourselves. Like we're multi-layered, emotional people as well. And we're just like, oh, I'm going to put one foot in front of the next. It's time to do another thing. And we'll run ourselves right off of a cliff when God would say, you did that. I didn't do that. I never wanted to do that. For us to be honest and kind to ourselves. Ask ourselves a question. Do I have enough bandwidth for this conflict? Do I have enough bandwidth for this challenge? Do I have enough bandwidth to add another thing? To recognize that's not the voice of God saying, do more, give more, be more. God is kind to us in our weak season. Okay, whisper. I don't want to hear it loud, but whisper, amen. Amen. Secondly, and as we're bringing this down, if God's kind to us, we should be kind to ourselves. And if God's kind to us, he's modeled how for us to be kind to those around us. And to not be monolithic in our judgments of the people around us. Before you judge, ask. So maybe somebody's not here. And you've come in Sunday after Sunday and you're like, I don't know, man. I mean... God says, come to church. They're not here. Bunch of failures. <laughs> Thank you for being here, by the way. Shouldn't before we make it, and this is simple, that's funny. Shouldn't though, with your spouse, shouldn't you ask? Rather than why'd you do that? Who do you think you are? How are you? Perhaps what they're doing is out of character and due to a lack of capacity. Does this excuse everything? No. But the call is not to do more, but to know more about one another. To care more deeply about the people in front of us as God cares more deeply about us than he does care about what he can get out of us. You have to apply that in multiple layers in your relationship. But if God, in your relationships, but if God models that with us, shouldn't we model that to ourselves and to other people? He shows us how to move out of immaturity to maturity and purity in our interactions around us. So land on, God is tender. He's so deeply cares about you as his child. And hear this one last time. You are the mission of God. With that, can somebody bring me communion? Because we're going to take, Thomas, would you bring me a, a cup? Because I forgot it. And I, I pretended in first service. <laughs> I held an imaginary cup and peeled it open. And I'm just, you guys are better than that. You deserve more. The picture of communion, thank you, sir. 
Appreciate it. The picture of communion is not a corporate affair. It's, it's unfortunate that we take communion in here like this because we've got to use our imaginations to take us back to the original intent and context of communion, which was at a table. So you say a couch because marriage therapy with God. But this table was so complex with the disciples. They're sitting around, they're dealing with stuff. You've got Peter, James, and John that are fighting because they want to be the best. You've got uh, uh, John who's grieving in his heart because he's afraid for his friend. You've got Peter who's self-loathing and scared about what's going to happen. He's super anxious. You've got Judas sitting at the table, totally conflicted about what he's about to do. And Jesus is at the table. I love it that it's close, eyeball to eyeball, that it's conversational. Go back to the, the pictures in the text, conversational. Because God's not looking to just get more out of you. He's looking to get close to you. And for you, you're invited to the, that's the beauty of this. You're invited to the table with Jesus so that you can look in his eyes and see the truth about how he truly feels about you. And let him make an adjustment. Say, no, 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 don't put words in my mouth. Before anything else, you're my child and I love you. Thanks for listening. Once again, our mission at Grace Monroe is to pursue God's heart for the restoration of all things. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, go to graceformonroe.com connect. Also, if you felt blessed by our ministry and want to partner with us financially, everything you need to know about giving is online at graceformonroe.com give. We hope you have a wonderful week. Be blessed.